Sister Megan Rice was imprisoned for almost three years for a peaceful 2012 demonstration against nuclear weapons of mass destruction at the U.S. government's top-secret Y-12 nuclear weapons facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So when you hear Sister Megan explain that her reasons for demonstrating were renouncing and denouncing and exposing nuclear weapons or any crime, we're all invited, humanly speaking, we must expose and oppose crimes against humanity. There's only one thing to do, and that is anybody who is available and free to expose and oppose nuclear weapons of mass destruction. She makes it sound so simple and logical that when you hear a call to action like that from a woman like that, it's possible to think that maybe we can join together to eliminate this seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, for the holiday season, we revisit an inspirational interview with Sister Megan Rice, the 85-year-old nun and anti-nuclear peace activist who, with two comparably senior accomplices, broke into the Y-12 site in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, often referred to as this country's Fort Knox for uranium. After their brief, peaceful protest, they were tried by our government on sabotage charges and found guilty. After more than two years in prison, the sabotage charge was overturned, and I spoke with Sister Megan and one of her two co-activists, 60-year-old Gregory Borcha Obed, less than two weeks after their release. We will also have Nubnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than Santa's probably going to be leaving under anyone's tree. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 25th, 2018, and here is a special encore presentation of the Nuclear Hot Seat Sister Megan Rice Transform Plowshares Special. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, None Nuts of the Week. When the Washington Post runs an article entitled How to Prepare for a Nuclear Attack, You expect the information to have solidity and validity. And when the sole interviewee for the article is the former deputy commissioner of the Bureau of Public Health Preparedness and Emergency Response at the Chicago Department of Public Health and who is on the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, you really expect some solid information which is why a reasonable person with some knowledge of the situation can only respond with shock, 
awe and mystification at the response of Suzette McKinney, who was quoted in the article as saying, I would honestly say the duck and cover response from the Cold War era is really the best protection that we as individual citizens would have after a nuclear bomb or improvised nuclear device was detonated. W-T-F! For those of you too young to remember it for real and who have not checked it out on YouTube, Duck and Cover is the long-ridiculed film aimed at informing children that if they see a flash of an atom bomb, all they need do is duck under their desks or a nearby table and cover their heads with their hands. At voila! Safety. Easy as pie as if that behavior is any protection from the devastation of a nuclear fireball capable of incinerating and evaporating an entire city at one go, than the ensuing firestorm and intense radiation exposure that continues to kill for days, weeks, months, years, and as long as your DNA survives. Suzette McKinney, in her wisdom, we've got that in quotes, goes on to say, With these nuclear bombs, the most effective response seems to be shielding from debris and material that can cause traumatic injury. Have you not heard the word radiation? Did you watch any of the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize ceremony awarded to the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons? If so, did you hear any of the speech by Hibaksha Setsuko Thurlow? Hibaksha being a survivor of the Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombs. Did you listen to her description of what happened when she was 13 and experienced the first atomic bomb? How her school collapsed and she lost 351 classmates all at once? If they had been ducking and covering, do you actually think that would have made one whit of difference? Do you even know what a nuclear blast can do to the human body? And have you or anyone connected with this article actually looked at the inanity that is the film Duck and Cover starring Bert the Turtle? Lady, I don't know what's in the Kool-Aid you drank, but it's time for you to get over it or step away from the nuclear issue because you are naive ignorant, and or lying to the public. And Washington Post. Really? Really? Did Philip Bump actually write this with a straight face? And your editors passed on it? If so, let's spread the honors around. Suzette McKinney, Philip Bump, and Washington Post editors, you are all this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Now that I've got that out of my system, here's this week's feature, an encore presentation from Nuclear Hot Seat number 205 of May 26, 2015. I don't know if it's possible to feel both proud and humbled, but I feel both at the thought of being able to bring to you the next three interviews with today's guests, the activists of Transform Now Plowshares. First, Sister Megan Rice. She is an 85-year-old anti-nuclear activist and Roman Catholic nun of the Society of the Holy Child Jesus. 
On July 28, 2012, at the age of 82, she, then 57-year-old Greg Borcha Obed and 63-year-old Michael Wally, broke into the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the U.S. government's weapons facility. In a peaceful protest they called Transform Now Plowshares, the trio squeezed baby bottles of donated human blood on the outer walls of the supposedly heavily guarded, highly enriched uranium materials facility. They then spray-painted anti-war slogans, hit the walls with small hammers, put up crime scene tape, prayed, and sang. She and her co-activists were arrested, tried, and convicted, not of misdemeanor trespass, the initial charge against them, but of attempting to sabotage the security of the United States. As you will hear, they should have been paid a fat consulting fee for safely exposing such a hole in U.S. nuclear weapons security, but that was not the case. For this peaceful protest action, Sister Megan received a sentence of almost three years in prison, and her co-activists received sentences of over five years each. After serving more than two years just two weeks ago on May 12th, the conviction on sabotage against all three was overturned by the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Five days later, she and the others were released. Part of the court ruling read, Vague platitudes about a facility's crucial role in the national defense are not enough to convict a defendant of sabotage. Amen to that. I spoke with Sister Megan on Monday, May 25th, 2015. Sister Megan, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. First of all, did you know that your case was in the process of being reviewed by the Sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals? And were you in any way expecting that the sabotage ruling against you was going to be taken away? I certainly knew it was happening. And I can only say common sense would say that's what would have to happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, anything, we're always ready for every surprise in this country. And common sense is not necessarily the most common thing we have. So it was great news that was received by people throughout internationally, our community. When you learned of the court's decision, what was your reaction? I wasn't all that excited because I really expected that that would happen. I found out at 3 in the morning, I was listening to the BBC, and it was just a tiny little announcement at the end of a six- or seven-minute summary of the world news. And it just said in a statement that, you know, the naming us all are, are given immediate release. Let's take this back to how the action started. This has been credited or at least been mentioned in connection with something called Transform Now Plowshares. Is that a group? Is that a movement? Tell us a bit about what that is. Since about 1980, starting with Father Dan Berrigan, brother Bill Berrigan, started the Plowshares Movement, which has done many, many actions, direct actions to expose the illegality and the immorality that we all know in our hearts of of nuclear weapons. And so each of the actions 
I'm not sure of the number in my head, but it's certainly more than 30, but I don't know. has a special name, just like every battleship has a special name. And so the last one, which happened on the 2nd of November, 2009, in Kipsap, Bangor, Trident Submarine Base, was called Disarm Now. And it came to me that, okay, what's the next step? You know, part of the process, the main process of disarming is not to deplete the planet and stop end all the jobs for people, but to transform the whole thing into what we need. So the word transformation just came. So uh, the next step after disarming, or really part of it, is transform now into life-enhancing alternatives. How was the determination made that you would target the Y-12 uranium depository at Oak Ridge? That was the research that we were doing, mainly at that point, Greg and I, we were moving from community to community. He lived in Duluth, and so we went east. We had to go east anyway, and we stopped in Kansas City, which was the place where they were making all the non-nuclear parts to nuclear weapons, uh, for in other words, continuing the proliferation of nuclear weapons. They were willing to do something for August 2012, so we didn't need to do anything there. Then we moved on eastward and consulted with the peace movements all along the way in communities that were there. We got up to Maine even, to Bangor, I mean to um, near Portland, you know, Bath. And uh, that was another submarine carrier manufacturing place. And then we moved down, and we realized that the one that hadn't had a good direct action was Oak Ridge. We wanted to have something for... 2012, August 6th and August 9th, you know, something around that time to remember 68 years ago. You, Michael, and Greg took several symbolic actions on the site. How did you determine what those actions were and what they would symbolize? It was very easy. I mean, these are the same symbols that have been used and we've meditated on them and understood them. I started being connected with Jonah House after my mother died, in, and I was there in 1999 and 2000 when a, an action was going on. So I was there to reflect and pray with that community and be instructed by Phil Berrigan and Liz and the people living there I understood fully, and the same way with Greg, he was living there. We understood the importance of those symbols of exterminating uh, sacred life. So the sacred symbol of life certainly is blood. And to show that to the workers without having to say anything was very educative. And renouncing and denouncing and exposing nuclear weapons or any crime were all invited, humanly speaking, we must expose and oppose crimes against humanity. How supportive was your order as you were making these plans and going into this action? 
when I came back from Africa, I asked where I felt I could, you know, work best in this country. And I had been to the nuclear test site in Nevada 20 years before. This is 2003 and four now, really mainly 2004. And I realized that they needed somebody in Nevada. So I was allowed to do community work there and help out with that peace movement for the next six, seven years. But I was then realizing that was nuclear testing and the action at Kipsack Bangor in the state of Washington had made me see, was two years later, that nothing really had happened. So we were ready to, to make another message. And so I asked to be able to focus just on nuclear weapons for a year, and they were very, very supportive of that. And I, I didn't have to say what I was doing. We are an order with whose charism or whose mission is to meet the wants of the age. And we have been studying what are the wants of the age since we began, encouraged by our founders, Cornelia Connolly, in 1846. So we've been constantly searching to meet the wants of the age. And I could see that this couldn't be a more important want of the age to meet, to try to meet. Let's take this into the action itself. At the point that you were dropped off and you were facing that chain link fence as you were about to go in, what were your thoughts? What were your feelings? Were you scared? Was this a profound moment? Did you pray beforehand? How did this get started? We had like an eight-day retreat before that in the area of Knoxville with the people who were very happy to be part of this designing and shaping of what would happen. And just the wonderful grace of energy uh, in our shared prayer through the eight days. And we had known from satellite, whatever, I didn't have to worry about that, exactly what and where. And so we were dropped off, not in front of the chain link fence, but before the woods, you know, we were able to mount the ridge, which is Oak Ridge, in the dark. And we just followed and we just walked through no path or anything. We just headed to the top, winding our way. And obviously we were led. And then we finally, after about two hours going up, we reached in. I wasn't even thinking about being afraid because we were getting through and nobody was stopping us. And um, we could look down on this. It was probably 4.30, so before dawn. And we just were able to move right on down. And we were inside the three, well, first the outer fence was still in the woods. That didn't take any time. And we closed it up, you know, with little plastic ties. Very short, um, right angle, two sides of a triangle, so that we could slip through with a flap. And uh, we were all rather thin people, and it was very easy. And then we got to the top of the ridge and looked over, and then we just kept on going. We saw a bat security car just drove by. We saw it drive back, and then we just started and got to the first of the last three fences. Couldn't have been five minutes to get through one. Nothing was electrocuting us. We just moved on and got through three 
and we were there by quarter to five, and I had looked, the last time I looked at my watch, it was quarter to five, and we did exactly what we knew we were going to do, totally unheated, unimpeded, and uh, it took maybe 10 minutes, maybe, you know, you didn't look at your clock, but not long at all, and then we had finished the three or four things we planned to do quietly, not having any, uh, just we were all very focused, and then this way down at the opposite end of the building, which is very long, this van that had been driving around the roadway before drove right next to the building, probably 25, 30 feet inside the last fence, I guess. I don't really remember. I mean, I couldn't measure exactly. And anyway, it drove very slowly up to us, and we were ready to meet it. And we bowing before them. It was just that one man. Kirk Garland, and we read. He was willing to listen to our. We just were ready to read to him why we were there, and that is available. And I hope people know that we wrote that during the retreat, in the eight days before. Given a link to it, I will definitely post it up on the website in connection with this episode, so that people can actually read what oh, you yeah. said. The two things that we brought in were the statement. And then the second one was the indictment, a list of what laws were being infringed by continuing the manufacture, testing, use, and storage of nuclear weapons. So it sounds like rather than what has been reported that you were there for two hours before a guard showed up, that it was really a relatively short period of time. That was it's always, uh, yeah, I find that it's just a mistake. We landed on the downside of the ridge at probably, I think it was by 2 or 2.30. So we, we were looking at it by 4.30. Okay, so it could be like two hours to get up the hill. But the actual action itself, it sounds like it took maybe 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, I, at certainly 20 at the outset at the most. Anybody could have done it in that little time. How did the guard respond when he suddenly came upon the three of you on this site? Yeah, well, it wasn't all that sudden. It was slow. He responded just by looking at us. We could hear him saying on the phone, his cell phone, they're peace protesters. You better send somebody along, something like that. He was very. He had known that we were peace. It was most obvious that we were peace protesters, and um, he, he had had that experience. He had been at Rocky Flats for many years, and then somewhere else. And you know, you can always tell when they're peace protesters. How were you treated by the authorities when they did show up? I felt that they were. I mean, there was this. The second person was nervous and had his gun and this and that, but. It was very gently. We were handcuffed and told to sit on the ground, and which we did. You know, this is now 5.15, 5.30. took a little while for the more vans to come. And we were on the ground with our hands cuffed at the back with our ankles cuffed. From then on, you know, we watched the sun come up. People gradually, you know, like, undressed because it was Saturday morning. Those that were higher up in the line of the marshals 
uh, spoke very politely to us. You don't. You, do you want to answer some questions? You don't have to without your lawyer, kind of thing. And then we sat there. You know, it wasn't until maybe 10 o'clock they brought three collapsible chairs, but we would stand up, you know, just because it was stiff and all that, and they had to help me get up. You know, you'd stand maybe every 20 minutes or five minutes or something like that. It took them all that time to get their act together, in other words. You were initially charged with misdemeanor trespass. And then suddenly the charges were up to damaging a defense facility under the Sabotage Act, which carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. And there was also the charge of causing more than $1,000 damage to government property, which carries up to 10 years in prison. Why do you think the charges against you were so dramatically increased in their severity? Obviously, they didn't want a trial. They thought we would try to get out easily with a plea bargain. Oh, was that the strategy? Uh, oh, absolutely. They always want plea bargains. Was there any question in your mind about taking the plea bargain? No or question. Along? At, no possibility of a question. And what did you hope to accomplish with the trial and the resulting disability? To doing what? We had to do. It's the obligation of every, we're all equally responsible to expose and oppose known crimes. So there was nothing else we could do but do it in order to make a very clear message quickly. I know you take your ministry with you wherever you go, and you ended up spending over two years in prison. What was it like for you in there, and what sort of work were you able to do or were you moved to do with the women who you met there? I would say I was more minister to than ministering. With ministry, we believe, is totally shared. It's a giving and a sharing and a receiving, and none of those can be exaggerated in order to be harmoniously accomplished. And it happened to me. I received as much as I shared, as much as I gave. We always say in West Africa, go by opposites when you're in the reality of the thing. Nobody could imagine what the reality is until we experience it. And I have been overawed by amazingly strong and gifted women and um uh, some compassionate men, there were not many for me to interact with, but some were very respectful and uh, interacting that way. But, of course, we, I was fellow inmates. And I also had a lot of time to interact with the world because I did try to respond in some way to everybody who has written, either by a joint letter, because people need to be honored. I mean, everybody is involved in this, and Equally, whether they're writing letters, whether they're sitting at home with their arthritis, or whether they're just, you know, sending the energy through prayer to harmonize and heal the world. And it's just part of that grand scheme of, of healing the planet of its wounds and being healed, of course. In this time between your release and the fact that you're going to still have to go back to court for resentencing sometime this summer on the one remaining charge. 
what are your plans for this period of time before you find out finally whether they are going to put you back in jail or whether they're just going to declare time served and let you go? I haven't had time to do any planning. My time has been taken up and programmed by something ever since we were released last Saturday evening at 6 o'clock. So I just followed the, what was the next call, for, you know, the next day, what, what had emerged. I had a remote plan. I knew that I could, you know, get a medical checkup immediately and then some recommendations in the same building to see whatever I needed, slight checkups, which were very, very minor, and everything is very mild and I don't have anything to worry about. You know, it's just very practical things. So I'm just staying nearby and, and doing accomplishing those things and trying to respond to telephone calls from people like you. We haven't even had a chance to talk to each other, Mike and Greg, you know, because Greg was in transit and and there just hasn't been time for me to dial them and nor them to dial me. Were you in contact at all during the time that you were in prison? Not really, really. We were meant to be, but Greg got his paperwork done coming from Leavenworth, but each of the places where I was just didn't respond to it. I definitely had a, we had a right to be in touch with each other, but we couldn't. They never came and told me it's okay to do it. In your mind, where would you like your action to lead? What do you want to happen now? And given that the listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat are international, we have 38 countries that listen to this show on a monthly basis, mm. what can we do to support you in where you want this to go next? I don't think that I'm seeking support for me. There's only one thing to do, and that is anybody who is available and free and carrying on with what they're all doing to expose and oppose nuclear weapons of mass destruction. And, and I see that people have each has their own gifts of creativity, their own style of doing it, and I totally honor I'm going to say you, and I'm speaking to all the people that you're in network with, and thank you, and just carry on and continue to see how we can make this message, you know, more, you know, and just react to the uh, denial of the Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference, uh, you know, the review that just ended on Friday, and let's support uh, the ray of hope there. The, the countries that are just getting out of that thing because they failed. New York Times doesn't even mention what was happening at the U.N. for the last month. So we all need to get in touch with the people who are involved in these international treaties and what can we do? How can we speak out? Because we are the majority. We're not the minority. Sister Megan Rice, you are one of my heroes I am honored to be speaking with you. I support you, and if there's anything I can do to help you in the future, please do not hesitate to let me know. You're doing it, dearie. You're on it. So we, this is a mutually assured um, admiration society. Should we say that? Thank you so much for that. Sister Megan Rice, 
You are a hero to so many of us, and I am deeply honored that we have been able to spend this time together on Nuclear Hot Seat. Bless you, dearie, and uh, divert to the to what you're doing. You're doing a great job, and thank you. Sister Megan Rice. I next spoke with Greg Borcha Obed, another of the three Transform Plowshares activists who took part in the Y-12 action. Greg is an Army veteran who lived at a Catholic worker house in Minnesota and was 57 years old in 2012 when the action took place. Last Monday, May 18, was his 60th birthday and second day out of prison. Going back into the action that started everything, when and how did you and Sister Rice and Michael Walney come together, and how did it evolve that you did this Transform Now Plowshare action? Well, Megan was the um, initial spur. She uh, had attended the trial for the Disarm Now Plowshares, and she felt very moved by the expert witnesses and the testimony of the defendants, and she felt she should do such a thing. And she ended up calling me, and then we collaborated for a while. We discerned, we prayed, and then we kind of like contacted other people, and Michael was interested. He just heard about it, and he contacted us. And how did the three of you know each other? Was there prior connection? Were you part of some community together? Oh, yes. Megan and I lived together in community in Baltimore, maybe for a year, and Michael lived in a nearby community in Washington, D.C., and I've known Michael for 20 years, maybe, and we did a plowshares action together before this one. There were certain actions that you decided to take before going there, which included the spraying of the outside of the building with baby bottles of donated blood, spray painting anti-war graffiti, singing, praying, putting up banners. Why were these specific actions chosen, and how were they chosen? Well, there is a long history of plowshares actions in the U.S. and some in other countries in which hammers and human blood have been used as symbols. And we felt we wanted to join that tradition of peacemakers, and so we brought small hammers. We didn't hammer on weapon parts like other plowshares actions. We hammered on the wall. That's a symbol of fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah that in the latter days people will learn God's ways and beat their swords into plowshares. And that's where the hammer comes in. Uh, we hammered a little bit on the wall in a symbolic act, and it symbolized our hope of the crumbling of the nuclear weapon infrastructure. And the blood, we poured the blood on the walls as a symbol of what the weapons actually have been doing when we make them, because many people die from just the uranium mining and the producing of the weapons and then the testing of the weapons. Rosalie Bertel estimated that 10 million people have died just from the making of the weapons. And so it was a symbolic act to say we are against this killing, this potential mass murder of the planet, 
and we're willing to give our blood to prevent more bloodshed. Within the movement, as I have been coming into and experiencing it, there seems to be a separation in people's thinking between mining and weapons and reactors. Do you agree with this separation or not, and what would your reasons be? When I was in the prison, I read a book by Robert Gleason. Forget the title, but it had to do with nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And he makes the point, and quotes other people, that when you make a nuclear power plant, the waste material from that is fuel for our nuclear weapon. You, you can alter that, you know, enrich it, not too difficultly, and make a weapon. And so what he says is, if you're against nuclear weapons, you really need to be against nuclear power also. And that when we, as a nation, promoted nuclear power all around the planet in all these other countries, those are precursors of potential nuclear weapons. Going back to the actual action that you took, what did you do to prepare for it, and what did it take to get you to the point that you were actually in front of that first chain link fence? Well, we spent many, many um, weeks in prayer and discernment and study. We uh, studied that the issues regarding the three nuclear weapons plants that have been proposed by Obama, and then Congress had given the money for them. And so we knew from studying the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty that this trend of modernizing our weapons, nuclear weapons, is illegal. From our viewpoint, from the Nuremberg Treaties, if you are aware of your government committing a war crime, you have a right and a duty to take steps to intervene in that war crime. And we understood that the building of this next weapon factory, they call it the uranium processing facility, that would be a further war crime. And so we studied, we collaborated, we went on retreats. Megan and I went on a retreat about Gandhi. And so we looked at the spiritual roots of protesting and how if you take on suffering yourself, that is a way to bring about social change. That was a, a fundamental teaching of Gandhi. And so Plowshares' actions are part of that history. And then Michael met up with us, and we continued to pray and study and look at our symbols. We wrote up two statements. One was an indictment of the government war crimes, and one was our group statement communicating the values and our, our purpose for doing the action. When you actually began to take the action, were you frightened? Were you exhilarated? Was there any point when you were doing this where you felt like second-guessing yourself? There is a lot of trepidation and uncertainty when you're preparing to go into an area that we knew was called the lethal force zone. We wanted to go all the way up to the building, and we knew there were these high security fences. But we also knew from our faith and from other plowshares actions that, surprisingly, the spirit does lead people to complete and to do the hammering and the pouring of blood. And so... We were very hopeful also. Now, during the action, 
when we approached that inner fences that said lethal force zone, and we knew there was some kind of technology for motion detectors and maybe microwaves. They even said in advance there's other technology that they weren't publicly saying. So when, we, when I approached that with Megan and Michael, uh, the thought did come to me, we're not going to make it. Uh, this is just too advanced, too difficult, and we should turn around. But then, like a split second later, the inner voice said, well, you came this far, you should, you should keep trying. So uh, we cut through that fence. No sensors went off. No alarms were ringing. There was no spotlight. And we just proceeded calmly, and we cut through the next fence, and we were able to do everything we had hoped to be able to do. How long were you actually at the site? before the guard showed up, and what were you doing when he did appear? Well, it is a big facility, and there's a long ways over the woods and all. So we, we cut through the first fence, and then it was maybe an hour or more, but there's not sensors by the first fence. There's not even barbed wire. But once we cut through those last three fences, it might have been... 10 or 15 minutes when we get through the last fence to when the guard came. And then we had poured the blood, we had spray painted, we had put up the, this is a crime scene tape, and we had put out the other symbols of the bread and our leaflets and the books that we brought. Michael was still spray painting at the time, but Megan and I had finished all the, the work that we had done. So. It did feel like a very complete action when the guard arrived. How did the guard respond to you, and did you feel in any way in danger when he did find you? The first guard was very professional, we felt. He was calm. He was rational. He spoke to us. We spoke to him. He understood we were protesters. We said we were here. We were led by God. We gave him our statement. We read our statement to him. We sang songs. Uh, this little light of mine is one that I recall. And he was not a threat. He was not uh, hurtful or harmful to us. Were there other guards who came to back him up, and did the situation change then? Yes. The second guard, I believe, was his supervisor, and he was very belligerent, and he gave the order to put on the handcuffs very tight and then refused to loosen them. And that caused a great deal of pain, especially to Michael and I. Michael's wrists were bleeding by the time we were brought to the, the county jail, and one of my wrists was completely numb, like for a month later because he really abused his authority, I believe. Now, the three of you were initially charged with misdemeanor trespass and destruction and depredation of government property, all of which are misdemeanors. But then the charges were changed to damaging a defense facility under the Sabotage Act, which carried a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. Why do you think the government made the change in the severity of the charges against you? Well, uh, technically, I think first we were charged with trespass. That was a misdemeanor. 
Then we were charged with malicious destruction. That was a five-year charge. I think that's a felony. Then we were charged with destruction of government property, which is a 10-year felony. And then, you know, after some time, they offered us a plea bargain. They said, plead guilty to the 10-year charge, destruction of government property, and we will not bring further charges. And they said, if you don't plead guilty to the 10-year charge, we will bring three or four more serious felonies and give you life in prison. And they were talking like homeland security charges and the sabotage charge. And our lawyers conveyed this to us, and we said to our lawyers that we are not guilty, the government is committing war crimes, and so we will not plead guilty to any offense. And therefore, they brought the sabotage charge. How was it going through the trial? These trials are very difficult because the government introduces motions to prevent your testimony, to prevent our expert witnesses. We had Ramsey Clark testify at a pretrial hearing that what we did was legal, that what the government is doing at that factory is unlawful. They are committing a war crime. And all that testimony that Ramsey gave before the judge was ruled inadmissible. And we were prevented from saying those things during our trial also. It's called a motion in limine. It's really a gag order on the defendants to speak freely about our motivation and what we understand the laws to be. And so it's, it's really very difficult to go through such a trial. It sounds like the government was afraid of the three of you and what you had to say and reveal in the course of the trial. That is one way to put it, and the reason is, in previous plowshares trials, in the U.S. and in other countries, when the defendants can speak about their motivation, when they can speak about the Nuremberg Principles, juries have failed to convict, and that is the concern of the government. There's even been um, trials in other countries where plowshares activists have been found not guilty several times by juries. Now that you have been released, and there's going to be a resentencing coming up this summer on the remaining charge, but it is generally believed by your attorneys and by those of us within the movement, that you're going to be released with time served for the time you've already been in prison. What are your plans between now and the resentencing, and what are your plans afterwards should you be given your complete freedom? Well, I think we should back up one more step. Okay. Our attorneys have said that the process of appeal is not over with. The government has until June 22nd to appeal the circuit court ruling in our favor. They can ask for a 15-judge panel to reverse it. And some of the attorneys say it's likely that the government will appeal it, but then it's uncertain what the full panel will do. We're hoping that they would agree with the two-to-one decision. But that's still up in the air. So we're not, like, ready for resentencing yet. It could be quite some time if the government appeals and the circuit court wants to review it again. Moving forward, 
is there any plan for the three of you to write a book or have a book written about this or in some other way continue this message whether you do continue in prison or not? Maybe you haven't heard, but there are two books underway right now by our professional writers. One is by Eric Slosser, who wrote an article for The New Yorker about our action and about Plowshares action. He is expanding that article and making some corrections and hopes to have it published by August 6th, the last time I heard. Uh, he was going to call it Gods of Metal. Maybe that will get delayed because of the appeal, but that was the last word I had from him. And then Dan Zach, the Washington Post reporter, is working on a much longer and much more detailed book about our, this particular action. If you would have any lasting impact from this dramatic action, this self-sacrificing action that the three of you have taken, what would that be? Well, we hope that um, all around the world people will begin to stand up and speak out and oppose this modernization of the nuclear weapon and the continued proliferation to other countries, and that this will be a sign for peace activists and you know, for ordinary people that the forces of violence do not always win. There is a stronger force with nonviolent and with taking nonviolent action, which can break through sometimes, and we hope, like, be a beacon to give encouragement to people. And if there's anything that the international listenership of Nuclear Hot Seat can do to support you moving forward, what would you ask of us? All around the world, people can take actions where they are, they, they can... Well, many people around the world did write to us and encourage us, but my understanding is with this nonproliferation conference that just occurred, there is a movement to try to, like, have a gra grassroots swelling against nuclear weapons. And many, like, non-nuclear power states are taking the lead in this. They are saying the nuclear weapon states must disarm. We signed the treaty. Other people signed treaties saying that they wouldn't develop weapons if the nuclear power states disarmed. And so we encourage everyone to be a part of that movement, to speak out, to act out, to say now is the time to stop building the weapons and to to get rid of them. That's the ICANN program, and we have covered that on Nuclear Hot Seat as well. Greg, is there anything left that you would like to say that we haven't had a chance to cover? Well, I'm just very, uh, like to express great gratitude for all the people who are working against nuclear weapons. Many, you know, thousands of people wrote to us with their support. 16,000, I think, signed a petition or sent cards and letters to the judge, and I'd also like to thank our attorneys for all their great and intense work on our behalf. And thank you for your role in this also of communicating the need for disarmament.
That was Transform, now Plowshares activist Greg Borcha Obed. The statement and indictment referred to in these interviews and drawn up by these three brave activists were read at the Y-12 site and are available on their website, transformplowshares.wordpress.com slash about. To make it simple, I'll have a link up on the website under this episode, number 392. The final chapter in this story took place on Tuesday, September 15, 2015. That's when U.S. District Court Judge Amul Thapar placed the activists on two years of unsupervised release. During that time, the activists are free to go anywhere they like as long as it's not onto the grounds of any nuclear facilities, which are prohibited. During this hearing, the activists asked the judge to reduce the amount of restitution they were ordered to pay for the damage at Y-12, nearly $53,000. Unfortunately, he denied that request. This is what Nuclear Hot Seat does. Brings you the nuclear news from a different perspective that either you won't get anywhere else, or you're going to have to piece together from a lot of different sources. So if what you hear on the show makes you laugh, think, helps you understand the nuclear issues, and not be so alone with your awareness, help us keep it going. Donations are the only way we get to meet the bills, so if you would care to help out, please go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. My gratitude to those of you who do donate, some of you a small amount on a monthly basis, and know that whatever is offered is considered energy and support and help, and I am grateful to all of you. Here's today's final thought. Peace on Earth. Isn't that what we wish for each other at this time of year? That we have peace on Earth? But what exactly does that mean? What and where is the model for peace? Would we know it if we encountered it? Or is peace such an outdated, outlandish, boring concept that we wouldn't recognize it as something good if it smacked us upside the head? After all, the economy of the world, or at least here in the United States, seems to be based on war. Close to $1 trillion was dedicated to the military and the war machine, In 2018, we cram men, women, our children, resources, the education and health of our nation, the very fabric of the future itself, into a seemingly never-ending meat grinder of death and destruction that we export to the rest of the world, wrecking havoc from ground and sky. Why do we make such horrific instruments of mass destruction? Because for a small sliver of the population, war is highly profitable. War is big business, lots of jobs. And what's bigger in war than nuclear weapons and the threat of them being used? And what's a bigger threat to war and nukes than an outbreak of peace? After all, in the president's cabinet, we used to have a Department of War, which in 1949 was renamed the Department of Defense, but we have never had a department of peace. We don't even look at peace as an alternative. It's just how much more we can throw at endless war. So maybe, like Sister Megan Rice 
and all the other concerned individuals who make a stand in whatever way they can on behalf of people and the environment of care and support instead of hate and destruction. We can advance the cause of peace not only in this holiday season, but beyond. How? Find a way that suits you. Sign a petition. Write a letter to a legislator. Attend a talk or a meeting to learn more. Read books. Listen to Nuclear Hot Seat. Talk about what you learn to others. No action is too small. No person insignificant. We need you. All of you. One step at a time. One day at a time. It's not over till it's over. And it's not over yet. For now... For me and all of us here who contribute to and support Nuclear Hot Seat, I wish you a year filled with ever-growing peace on Earth. This has been a special Encore presentation of Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 25th, 2018. Theme music and Numbnuts of the Week jingle written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, and recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the three peace activists, Sister Megan Rice, Gregory Borcha Obed, and Michael Wally, are home for the holidays, and we here at Nuclear Hot Seat wish all of them a Merry Christmas and a peaceful New Year. Same to you out there who are listening as well, along with a reminder not to go to sleep, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.